Is this what the two of you did to Vesna? I ask angrily, continuing to walk away from the clearing. You're wor worse than the old woman. You're worse than Zabrin, Yara shouts after me. Yes, Yarastan, Myrna shouts. This is what the two of us did to Vesna. And Vesna grew rigid. Her face became twisted with fear, just like yours. I place the palms of my hands over my ears and run to the tram stop. The tram isn't there, so I run to the next stop and wait for it. My heart thumps. My whole body is filled with outrage, with revulsion, and yes, with fear and shame of a passion I don't allow myself to feel. A passion I tried to stop the only way I knew, by violence. The tram finally comes, and I do what Myrna said. I run from the passion. On the ride back to the city, I remember Myrna's threat. I'm going to force you and Yasna to decide which side you're on. Apparently, she and Yara had disagreed about that, and I had proved Yara wrong. I had proved I wasn't on Jan's side, on Sabina's side. I had proved that, for me, there were bounds, there were limits. Everything was not allowed. When I reached home, I went straight to bed but couldn't sleep. I tried to convince myself I couldn't have acted any other way. I heard Myrna and Yara return. Both of them rushed to the bathroom. When I heard Yara cry out with pain, it dawned on me that I had hurt her face seriously with the blow of my fist. My hand had gotten slightly cut, and the blood next to the cut was apparently Yara's. I grew concerned. My heart pounded with guilt, but I couldn't make myself face either of them. Then they became quiet. Myrna apparently put Yara to bed. Suddenly Myrna rushed into our bedroom and held a mirror in front of my face. She had never before been so drunk. Do you know what dead people look like, she shouted at me. Their faces are pale. Their bodies are contorted. There's a, there's a horrid lifeless fear in their eyes. Some of them breathe, but their breath has no life. Nothing stirs inside them. They're, they're not moved by their own passions and desires. Their limbs and organs aren't able to respond to the fire of life because no fire burns inside them. Myrna, I couldn't, not with Yara. She disregarded my interruption. Burned out themselves. They hit and beat and kill those whose bodies are on fire. Putting out fires. Healing, saving, jailing, sacrificing. Real people and real passions are in their way. They mess up their crystal palaces. Working, working herself up to, into a drunken rage, Myrna throws the mirror on the floor and shatters it. I've had enough God-worshippers in this house already. I won't allow any more life to be sacrificed to gods. I built the shed for God's priests and saints because I didn't want them sticking up my house with their purity. This is the devil's house. I didn't move to the shed. Myrna again slept the night in Yara's room and left me quarantined in our bedroom. I didn't sleep very much. I couldn't make myself understand that Myrna had wanted me to go to the point of copulating with my own daughter. Surely that act is beyond the limits of the unrestricted freedom which had so attracted all of us when Sabina described it. Was I really what Yara had called me, a hypocrite who applauded at a great distance, acts which I dared not undertake in my own home and neighborhood? Or was this whole episode to be explained as nothing more than a drunken spree? I left the following morning before either Myrna or Yara were up. When I returned, they were both in the living room with Yasna. I immediately noticed a bandage around Yara's jaw and started to walk toward her, but was stopped by a look of hatred, identical to the expression on her face the last time she had visited me in prison. Yara stumped past me out of the house and slammed the front door so hard the whole house shook. Yasna greeted me with surprise in her eyes and then turned to Myrna to ask, Are you sure it was an accident? Myrna told her, Yes, it was an accident. She then asked me, with an incomprehensibly sweet tone, Did you swing your elbow into Yara's face intentionally? Her tone mystified me completely. It indicated that Myrna was already playing another game, a game with an altogether different point. But I have to admit, I was relieved by her, by her hypocritical sweetness. 
The previous night, she'd threatened to ask me to leave the house and do what? Court Yasna? Myrna and Yara had apparently ascertained it no longer made any difference whether Titus or I courted Yasna, since they had proved Titus and I were the same. Yara's door slamming indicated that she was still indignant about that discovery, but Myrna was apparently ready to move on to the next scene. Yasna was too preoccupied with her own problems to be wary of Myrna's new mood. I just told Myrna I've confronted Titus with most of her suspicions, she told me furiously. Except for his brief period of military service, Titus never raised a hand against anyone. If you and Myrna and Yara are suspicious of him, confront him to his face, not behind his back. He'll be glad to answer all your questions. He told me he was willing to answer history for all his acts. All his life, he's been devoted to something. Is that what you hold against him? Yarastan holds nothing at all against him, Myrna told her. Yasna said angrily, Last time I was here, you accused him of having killed people like Yarastan and Yara and yourself. Why don't you say that to his face? I know he served in an army. I've known it since I first met him. But that army's task was to save democracy from fascism, not to kill people like you and Yarastan. You're unjust, Myrna. His whole life was lived in the service of working people. He never wanted anything for himself. Whether he was jailed after the rest of us or before, the fact is that he was jailed both times. It was when he came to see me after our second arrest that I first learned about you and Vesna. Titus felt so sorry for you. He told me you worked like an automaton all day long, only to return to two children and a crazy old woman. He helped me find my teaching position in the school. He helped Vesna get medical care that first time she was sick when her heart murmur was discovered. He never told me about his amorous experience with you, Myrna. He must have been too embarrassed. You were only half his age. He's obviously not the world's most passionate person, but neither am I. Maybe that's why we've always been drawn to each other. But whatever he's lacked in passion, he's more than made up in solidarity and loyalty to his friends. He's helped almost every one of us find jobs, starting with Yarostan and Jan. He even helped Mark Glavny and Adrian Poversham towards social positions much higher than Titus ever aspired to. I know he helped once too often. I know he shouldn't have insisted Vesna be taken to the hospital the second time she got sick. But it was I who told him Vesna was ill again. And what was he to think where he found her in your mother's bed, feverish and hysterical? He obviously couldn't imagine you held him responsible for Vesna's death. He came to see you twice after Yarostan was released. Titus told me Yarostan had asked for help in finding another job, but Titus even didn't even try to find one. He told me Yarostan looked like a skeleton when he came out and workplaces were so policed that Yarostan would have gone insane, even if he'd withstood the physical strain. That was three years ago. He hasn't offered his help to you or Yarostan or Yara since then. He knew you held something against him. Even his visits to me grew less frequent. It was only then that he became isolated, removed from events and from people. After a lifetime of helping the people around him, he was suddenly all alone. How could I turn against him now? How can you? If you suspect him of anything, tell him to his face. You're absolutely right, Yasna, Myrna told her sweetly and contritely. I have no reason to feel anything other than gratitude towards Titus. The first time I met him was after Jan's release 15 years ago, before Yarostan came to our house when he was released for the first time. Titus got Jan a job at the bus repair depot, and my father invited him to visit us. I haven't forgotten it was through Titus that Yarostan was hired as a driver, transferred to the depot, and then hired in the steel plant after that fight with the foreman at the bus depot. I understand exactly how you feel, Yasna. Suspicion isn't in my nature at all, and I'm more than willing to meet with Titus and discuss everything openly. What if I tell him to expect us at his room tomorrow night? Yasna asked. I like, I'd like nothing better, Myrna told her. During the past three years, I had thought the good man had stayed away from our house because of his, his hostility towards us. Did he really think Yara and I were hostile towards him? 
Myrna, your Yasna began. You'll come for us tomorrow night? Myrna asked, accompanying Yasna to the door. As soon as Yasna was gone, I tried to complete the sentence she'd begun. Myrna, you're a hypocrite, a liar, a faker. What nasty names to throw at your beloved, she told me. My beloved, yesterday you were ready to put me in your mother's shed until I died. Your pretty young wife was drunk yesterday, on wine, on Sabina and Sophia's letter, on life. And today she can't remember what happened yesterday, Myrna told me with the same hypocritical sweetness. She's forgotten every single detail, doesn't even know where she spent the night. What about Titus? I asked her. You weren't drunk the day before yesterday when you blamed him for everything that's happened to us for the past twenty years. Did you forget that too? You hadn't drunk a drop of wine then. When did he become the good man who mistakenly imagined you and Yara had something against him? Myrna's response to my anger was to put her arms around me and tell me, If I ever lie to you, Yara's done, it'll be for one reason only, because I love you. That's not fair, Myrna, I protested. I don't understand what happened yesterday. I don't understand your new attitude toward Yasna. You and Yara are up to something, and I'd like to know what it is. You'll know, Yarastan, soon enough. The following evening, Yasna was already at our house when I returned from the carton plant. The three of us took a tram toward the bus depot, where I once worked. Yara had turned down Yasna's invitation. Titus and I hadn't seen each other since the days immediately after my release from prison. We pumped each other's hands warmly. I congratulated him on his engagement and told him I was looking forward to the celebration. Titus apologized to Myrna for the way he had behaved when she and Zednik had surprised him before Myrna's dance. I was a little stunned when you told me Tabarkin was your father. I didn't understand. The misunderstanding was all my fault, Myrna told him. I didn't know you and Zednik had met before. Then Myrna went on with an irony that neither Titus nor Yasna seemed to notice. My isolation in the present historical moment gave me a desire to surround myself with all the people who had ever been close to me, my father, brother, husband, friend. Yasna clarified the meaning of your invitation, Titus told her. I obviously understand the need for this type of regroupment of revolutionaries at a time of a people such as the present, but I didn't feel my presence at the dance would be a fruitful form of intervention. Perhaps I was wrong. The task of revolutionaries is to generalize understanding of the historical goals of the working class struggle at all times and in all situations especially during a period that seems to have so much in common with the excitement we lived through 12 years ago at the time of the Megaran uprising, Myrna said to him, intentionally winding him up. There are certain similarities between the two periods, Titus said excitedly. The proletariat is once again regaining its own project. It is once again carrying its own historical task. The self-organization of the class, the exercise of power by the class as a whole, are once again on the agenda. Not since Megarna has it been so urgent for revolutionaries to rejoin the stream of history. You've put my innermost thoughts into the most perfect words, Myrna told him with a sarcasm I considered completely unprovoked, but which neither Yasna nor Titus noticed. The proletariat is regaining its project and revolutionaries are rejoining the stream of history. What a perfect way to describe my hopes twelve years ago and my activity today. You say it with such conviction that you boost my confidence. Only a few days ago, Yarostan and I asked Yasna if you had also been infected by the activity unfolding around us, and I can see that you have. Your desire to rejoin the stream of history must be as intense as it was at the time of the Magarna Rising. Yasna interceded. Titus told me it wasn't only the social situations that were similar, but also his personal relationship to them. During the years before the Magarna Rising, Titus had become a functionary in the trade union apparatus, a simple cog. The work was repetitious and bureaucratic. There seemed to be no point to it other than to reproduce the bureaucratic apparatus. For me, the autonomy of the class has always constituted the indispensable condition for the revolutionary activity, Titus added. 
The trade union council was not an instrument of that autonomy. The work wasn't only repetitious, it had no historical significance. That apparatus did not carry any part of the proletarian project. Instead of being an instrument of class action, the apparatus had substituted itself for the class and tried to move history by itself, and in the face of the proletariat's opposition. But revolution cannot be made against the masses. The Magarna rising was a fresh wind. Was it the proletarian project the Magarna workers were carrying? Myrna asked, pretending naivete about Titus's meaning. The authorities accused them of all being agents of foreign reactionary circles. I remain convinced the strikes in the councils were genuine attempts of the proletariat to regain its project, Titus told Myrna. Workers conscious of their own historical mission are immune to such influences. What about Yarostan and Jan? Myrna asked. Were they arrested for carrying the proletarian project, for rejoining the stream of history? Why were they arrested before other workers who had engaged in class activity? Why were they arrested a year before you were? They weren't arrested because of the political activities in which they were engaged, Titus told her, but because of a police bungle with a letter that supposedly came from a foreign spy ring. Oh, yes, that letter. I had forgotten about it. Was that really the reason Yarostan and Jan were arrested? Myrna asked. Her shameless lie. She's thought about that letter every day for the past twelve years. Made me jittery. And I forgot to ask Titus the question you had asked in your postscript, namely why he hadn't told me about that letter when he'd visited me in prison. Yasna responded to Myrna's hypocritical question. I've asked Titus all about that letter, Myrna. The first time he ever heard of anyone being arrested because of it was when he visited you after you left a message for him at his office. He immediately went to the police to try to see if Yarostan and Jan could be released, since he was convinced they had been arrested by mistake, but he got no further than to provoke them to arrest him. I spent hours arguing with the police right after you told me about the arrests, Titus told Myrna, but to no avail. They tried to deal with questions of consciousness by means of arrest and imprisonment. They completely failed to understand that the consciousness of a minority, no matter how clear, is not sufficient for the realization of the proletariat's historical task, which requires the constant participation and creative activity of all members, of the class as a whole. Generalized consciousness is the sole guarantee of the victory of the workers' councils. It's obvious that the class must use violence to reach its goal, but violence by a minority, separate from the general movement, is absolutely foreign to the methods of the class and constitutes a manifestation of petty bourgeois despair. This diminishes the confidence of the class in itself and impedes the road to the self-emancipation. Those arrests were a mistake, a major bungle. Isn't it amazing, Myrna asked with mock astonishment, that the bungling of the police had similar consequences for Jan as the bung bungling of the doctors had for Vesna? Yasna and I were startled, and we both looked at Myrna suspiciously. But Myrna went on. Of course your intentions were pure, both times. You tried to do what was best for Vesna, and for Jan, and for the proletariat. You're really a very generous person. Yarostan told me that once, long ago, all your comrades were arrested and charged with having connections with a notorious spy, and that apparently your arguments convinced the police to release the spy himself. Were the police more receptive to your arguments at that time than they were at the time of the Magarna Rising? What are you driving at? Yasna asked Myrna with undisguised hostility. But Titus turned to Myrna calmly and told her, Oh yes, you're referring to George Alberts's release. Yasna has given me a summary of Yarostan's correspondence with the Alberts' stepdaughter. The fact is that those arrests were motivated by the same erroneous conception. Of course I urged them to release Alberts. We had been comrades several years earlier. Alberts had become a reactionary, but he was not a spy. The point was to isolate his position, not to arrest him. What was it about his position that had to be isolated? Myrna asked. Yasna hasn't told me exactly what Sophia has written you, Titus said. Alberts was a revolutionary when I first met him. 
He was completely committed to the proletarian project. But certain influences made him turn against the organization necessary for the realization of the project, and by turning against the organization, he turned against the project itself. This happened during the war, and especially after the war. He failed to see that there were only two alternatives, the naked rule of capital, or the victory of an organizational form that, no matter how deformed, still carried the kernel of the proletarian project. I tried to help Alberts understand that the point was not to side with capital, but to give reality to the organizational form, to infuse it with spontaneity, to help create the autonomous movement which was capable of realizing the historical task of the proletariat. But the police obviously made no effort to help anyone understand anything. He was treated with unbelievable cynicism and brutality. During the war, the resistance organization recruited him to do certain scientific work abroad. After the war, the same organization attacked him for having done this work abroad. They labeled him a spy and even accused his so-called family of being his collaborators. This was highly incorrect, but it wasn't the incorrectness or the hypocrisy that convinced the police to release him. Retaining him in prison would have created an international incident. But why did they arrest the rest of us, I asked. We didn't have anything to do with Alberts. Because the police substituted itself for the class, he told me emphatically. Because a minority gained precedence over the class as a whole, that's why. As I said, the point was to isolate a position, not to arrest a section of the working class. The working class is a historical class and cannot be replaced. The organization of a part of the class is insufficient. Only the entire proletariat can undertake the revolutionary transformation of society. The police is not the agent of that historical project of the proletariat. We have to absorb that lesson. Our task as revolutionaries is to help, help the class understand its own interests, to help it carry its own project with its own energy, to raise ourselves to a clear understanding of the line of march, the conditions of the ultimate results of the proletarian movement. The point is not to inca incapacitate the class by jailing its most combative elements, as was done when the entire production group of the carton plant was arrested. It is the class in and of itself that is revolutionary. Without it, there's no revolution. What makes this class revolutionary is its position at the heart of the production process. Only this position makes the class capable of resolving the contradictions of capitalism. I was surprised by the way he ended that statement, although I don't think I would have noticed this earlier. You say the task of the proletariat is to resolve the contradictions of capitalism? Precisely, and this is what you and Jan Sedlik never understood, he said excitedly. Capitalist social relations become a fetter to the further development of the productive forces capitalism itself created. Those relations become an obstacle to the further development of social capital. This is what makes proletarian revolution inevitable. The historical task of the proletariat is to remove those fetters and to make possible the further development of the productive process. This is the general interest as well as the final goal of the movement. My head started swimming. I remembered Sabina's comments about the contradiction between my friendship with Jan and my admiration for Titus. And is this what you've devoted your life to? I asked him. To remove the obstacles to the development of objects? What do those objects have to do with your own life? Well, that's a funny way to put it, Yasna said with some annoyance. If Titus devoted his life to the development of objects, he certainly doesn't have much to show for it. Ever since I've known him, he's wanted no personal power, no wealth, no high posts in the government. He always considered himself as nothing more than a humble servant of history. He's always been single-mindedly devoted to the working class, to you, Jan, Luisa. His pay has never been larger than that of any factory worker. He's a lowly functionary, a cog, and an enormous apparatus. He files repetitious bureaucratic reports day in and day out. I didn't mean to accuse Titus of seeking personal gain, I told her with embarrassment. Titus himself added, neither personal gain nor historical significance. 
Only the class can remove those fetters, Yarostan. I've devoted my life not to removing the fetters, but to a much more modest work of theoretical reflection and elaboration, a work which permits the proletariat's activity to be based on an understanding of its past experience and future course. But it is only the class itself that undertakes that historical task. Without the activity of the class, my own activity amounts to nothing more than the reproduction of an empty shell, an apparatus that only stands in the way of the proletariat's task. I agreed with Yasna's description of the modesty of Titus's own engagement, and I hesitated before asking him, Why did you and George Alberts enlist in the so-called popular army during that uprising Louisa romanticized for all of us? I know exactly what you're driving at, and it's an experience I don't like to remember, he told me. At the time of that uprising, I was a second-year university student. I was already committed to the task of contributing to the generalization of understanding of the goals of the working-class struggle, to making the proletariat's historical lessons explicit. Those workers seemed to be attacking the entire established order, not merely locally, but on a world scale. The fascists received international support, and it was urgent for the workers to receive it in far greater measure, since the proletariat is an international class. Its struggle can ultimately be victorious only on an international level. Out of the chaos of political groupings reflecting the isolation and the divisions of the petty bourgeoisie, I finally found revolutionaries who understood the fundamental aspects of the struggle of the proletariat, the importance of political priorities, the importance of organization, as well as the unitary character of the revolutionary struggle of the class. Was George Alberts one of those revolutionaries, I asked him? Was the popular army the organization you found? Only in appearance, he said. But appearances are often misleading, and practice, practice is the only test of the truth of appearances. I believed that the self-organization of the class struggle and the exercise of power by the class as a whole was the only historical road of the proletarian struggle. But I also believed that denying the need for organization and intervention by revolutionaries condemned one to non-existence, turned one into an agent of a withering of class consciousness. In other words, I saw the need for clear programmatic intervention in the proletarian struggle. In appearance, the popular army seemed to be an organization which put forward the general interests of class and the final goals of the movement, and to be an integral part of that struggle. I thought I was among revolutionaries who not only raised themselves to a clear understanding of the line of march, the conditions, and the ultimate general results of the proletarian movement, but who also participated in the struggle of the class and distinguished themselves by being the most determined and combative elements in those struggles. But that military machine was obviously, I started... It was not a revolutionary organization, he said abruptly. When did you figure that out, I asked him. I was aware then, as I am now, that the historical task of the proletariat cannot be carried out by a conscious minority, he told me. Generalized consciousness is the sole guarantee of the victory of revolution. The activity of the class cannot be replaced by an apparatus. I've never identified the dictatorship of the proletariat with the dictatorship of an army, a party, or a union. As a part of the class, revolutionaries can at no time substitute themselves for the class, neither in its struggles within capitalism nor in the exercise of power. If that was what you thought, then your activity in that military apparatus becomes even more in incomprehensible to me, I said. I told you I had to learn the truth from practice. I saw that the popular army had a substitutionist character as soon as we reached the front. The revolutionary minority was given precedence over the class as a whole. This tended to diminish the confidence of the class in itself, and as a result impeded the road to its self-emancipation. Couldn't you see right at the start that such an organization would inevitably, quote, take precedence over the class as a whole, I asked him? No, Yarostan, I couldn't see that, and I still can't, he told me. There's something Louisa learned from her first husband, and she communicated it to you and to Jan Sedlik, even though she herself never believed it.
You've never understood that, unlike other classes, the proletariat has no basis of power in capitalist society. Its only material strength is its organization. The organization is the decisive and fundamental condition for the proletariat's very existence. I had thought the point of the struggle wasn't the proletariat's existence, but its disappearance, its replacement by a human community, I objected. The class struggle for the emancipation of the proletariat will mean the emancipation of all humanity, only when the organization of the proletariat is adequate to that task. And this requires an organization which is politically coherent, which has a clear orientation. This requires a proletarian consciousness, which grasps reality without distortions. Only such consciousness enables the proletariat to liberate all of society from exploitation. The popular army was a mistake, Yarostan, but not in and of itself, not as an organization, but because of the social and political situation in which it arose. The emerging movement in which it arose was characterized by immaturity of consciousness and insufficient understanding of the needs of the class struggle. Yet it was that movement, it was those workers who built the barricades, fought in the streets, and defeated the fascist army in a single day, I reminded him. I don't deny that, he insisted. Those workers were people like you and Jan. They were workers whose actions reflected the class's implacable hatred of capital, its will to struggle against the entire bourgeois order, its, repu its repudiation of class collaboration. What I am saying is that what guided those workers was class instinct, and not proletarian theory. And instinct is not enough for the proletariat. In order to liberate itself and to emancipate humanity, the proletariat requires organization and consciousness. The popular army did not fill that need. The organization of the proletariat has to be a secretion of the class itself. It cannot be imported from outside as the popular army was. That's why those workers and their organization remain separate. That's why the organization substituted itself for the class. That's why the organization ultimately opposed itself to the class and destroyed its most profound, most combative elements. At this point, Myrna re-entered the conversation. I think I caught the drift of what you've been saying, Titus, although I didn't understand all the intricacies. Do you think the same thing is happening today? Are the most combative workers being guided by instinct instead of being guided by proletarian theory? I certainly do, he told her. If that weren't the case, there wouldn't be such a drastic separation between the combative sectors and the conscious elements of the proletariat. Revolutionaries would not be so caught off from the, from the class, so isolated. Myrna simulated great interest in what Titus was saying. That sounds extremely important to me, Titus. I have several friends whom I am sure would want to learn about that separation, especially if you have suggestions about how it can be overcome. Do you suppose you might find the time to meet with them? Yasna carelessly suggested, Why don't you bring those friends to my house? We could combine it with a meal. I could easily entertain ten or twelve people. Even Titus was interested. How about combining it with the celebration we're going to hold two weeks from now? We could transform a trivial event into a fruitful political meeting. Wonderful, Myrna exclaimed. I'll invite several people who are at least as eager as you and I to rejoin the stream of history. They'll all want to share your profound political insights. At this point, Yasna heard the sarcasm in Myrna's tone. But Myrna got up to leave, and Titus shook her hand very cordially. It was obvious he hadn't heard the sarcasm. Yasna left with us. On the tram, she asked Myrna, What are you up to? Another prank? Why did you tell that lie about having forgotten the letter Sophia sent us at the time of the Magarna Rising? Did I lie? Myrna asked. I must have gotten confused. When I had first told Titus about those arrests twelve years ago, he had assured me that neither Jan nor Yarostan could have been arrested because of a letter they didn't receive. So when he said that they were only arrested because of that letter, I got confused. I thought he explained those arrests very clearly, Yasna said definitively. I agreed with Yasna. I told Myrna, 
I don't agree with him, or should I, or I should say, I no longer agree with most of what he has to say, but I certainly don't find him suspicious in any way. Myrna didn't respond, and we rode the rest of the trip in silence. I could tell that Yasna was suspicious of Myrna, afraid of her next prank. At home I asked Myrna what she had in mind with the so-called interested friends she intended to invite to Yasna's and Titus's celebration. Instead of answering, she asked me, Did you see the expression in his eyes whenever he spoke of history and the proletarian project? I repeated my question angrily. What pranks do you have in mind, Myrna? Didn't you recognize that expression, she asked me? It's the same expression that covered my mother's face whenever she spoke of her lord. And the tone with which he described workers, guided by instinct, she spoke the same way about people possessed by the devil. Myrna, what are your intentions? If you're planning to destroy Yasna's and Titus's happiness because of the superficial similarities you think you see, Remember when Jan and Sabina asked you to make love to the Queen of the Peasants, she asked. I don't see what connection. Remember the revolution Jan expected to result from your lovemaking? Morality, the family, the peasant village were all going to disintegrate. The revolution was going to begin. So that's what you have in mind, I exclaimed. Something similar to what you and Yara did to me in your clearing. Myrna, if you do anything like that to... Similar, Yarastan, but not the same, she told me. And I'm not going to do anything at all. I'm only going to bring a few friends, very old friends, to the celebration. Not my friends, but yours and Yasna's and Titus's. If any games or pranks result, it won't be because of me. Titus and his own friends will make them happen. If Yara and I are right about Titus, then morality, history, and the proletarian project are going to disintegrate all by themselves. And you'll see what a re revolution you might have made if you'd gone through with Jan's and Sabina's prank and made love to the queen. Whom do you intend to invite? I asked her. His whole train, Yarastan. The passengers, the, the ticket takers, as well as the engineers. Maybe I should have waited two weeks before writing to you. Yarastan.